this special episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where everything in Montpelier, how we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I am here with regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser, and we are taking some time as we finish out 2021 to pause and reflect on some of the big moments in time. And one thing we are going to do today is read for you the court decision known as the Brigham decision. So Emily, you know, this is the decision that led to Act 60 and led to the people waiting study that we are working on now as a state. Will you please kind of bring people up to speed and frame frame this piece of legislation, but also the people waiting study. The Brigham decision really reified or codified or cemented Vermont's commitment to equitable education. At the time that this case was brought forward, there were lawsuits like this all over the country. But as you'll hear in the decision, Vermont actually has a specific constitutional clause that caused this particular finding essentially this finding against the state saying that we were not providing an equitable education to our kids. And so what then followed was Act 60, which redesigned our education finance system to ensure that regardless of the property values in a community, if a community was spending the same amount, that community would have the same tax rate. So it really moved us towards a situation where each of us was responsible for each other's educational and children's educational funding. What Act 60 did not do and what we are now debating within the conversation around the People Waiting Task Force is it did not focus on whether it might or might not cost more to educate students in certain districts. Mm. It was very focused on the tax base and equity of a tax base but did not talk about equity of spending and that it was much more focused on equality of spending. And what we know now is that to achieve real equity, some districts might need to spend more than other districts. And we're looking at best ways to fund that realization that has been um, really part of the, both the educational debate. And I think the debate across our whole country over the last 20 something years. And I've, read the Brigham decision actually a couple of times over the last six months or so to anchor me in the work I've been doing because it, whether or not something is Brigham compliant gets tossed around a lot in the legislature. Mm-hmm. But when you read the decision, you, um, or listen to us reading the decision now, one, there's a certain narrowness to it and a certain sense that we had a lot of options for how we resolved the challenge and we chose to do it through education finance and through the tax base, but there were, uh, there were other possibilities available to us. The other thing that I think is really interesting is how many familiar names there are for me in the list of counsel involved in the Brigham decision and how they have moved to other places in state government since then. And I think that's true for any big court finding. So there's all kinds of ways that this moment from 1997 weaves through all of our other work. Something else that I've become very conscious of, and I think we saw the hints of that as we listened to Madeline Kunin's 
speech last week and in um, recently talking to Senator Ballin about her congressional campaign and the story she has about a take back Vermont sign. Mm -hmm. I moved to Vermont in 1996 and this decision in 1997 and Act 60 passing really quite close to the conversation around civil unions are both really massive shifts in how people understood the political landscape in our state and how Vermonters experienced that political landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think we, on a broader level, this redefining of equity is something that we're all still sitting with every day. And I think there are pieces of that conversation around equity and the decisions that Vermont has made and what Vermont prides itself in regarding that equity that I think sometimes we don't fully um, aren't able to sit in the reverberations of. Hmm. There were massive things that were left out when Act 60 passed, Mm -hmm. but it's really even hard to fathom what Vermont would look like without Act 60 or without Act 250 Mm -hmm. or without civil unions and then um, full gay marriage. And so Each of these sort of pieces of legislation didn't go as far, perhaps, as we think today might have been equitable. Um, Civil unions were still discriminatory, right? Right. And Act 60 didn't look at spending. And Act 250 is, in some ways, a logistical nightmare. But all three really completely reshaped our visions of what Vermont is to what it is today and what I think most of us really love about it. And so I appreciate this chance as the seasons change, as the legislation warms up to sort of go back to our basics and go back to our roots and read this court finding with everyone. I I love what you just said about Act 60 and Act 250 and civil unions, because they remind me that we may look at, at these moments in time and see what they didn't do or didn't do the way we would have done it. And yet, would we be able to have the equity discussions we're having now without these moments in time? Yeah. We might see them as not going far enough, but they may have been the stepping stones we needed. Yeah, even a thread from last week with Governor Kunin's speech, you know, she talked so powerfully about the immigrant story, mm-hmm. and yet by today's eyes, it was very limited. It was very limited. But it was hugely bold and transformative for an immigrant and a Jew to be elected governor. It was hugely bold for her to talk about the quarry workers in Barrie and about the the diversity of Vermont. And yet by today's standards, I'm like, but the American dream doesn't work for everyone. What are you talking about, Madeline? And so I love like that to just see our evolution as these points of time and realize that history is an ever-changing experience for each of us. So with that, I'm going to jump into the reading because I think we can both go on all day about that. And the point of today is to encourage reflection for our listeners. Exactly. So Brigham versus state Supreme court of Vermont, Amanda Brigham versus state of Vermont number 96 dash 502 decided February 5th, 1997. Before Allen C.J. and Gibson Dooley Morse and Johnson J.J., Robert A. Gensberg, St. Johnsbury, Joshua Diamond of Diamond and Associates, P.C. Montpelier, Franklin L. Kochman of Kochman and Smith, Burlington, Mitchell L. Pearl of Langrocksbury and Wool, Middlebury, 
David Putter of Saxer Anderson Walensky and Sunshine PC Montpelier, and Peter Welch of Welch, Graham, and Mamby White River Junction for plaintiffs and appellees. Jeffrey L. Amistoy, Attorney General, and Jeffrey A. Uden and Ronald A. Shems, Assistant Attorney Generals Montpelier for defendant appellant. In this appeal, we decide that the current system of funding for public education in Vermont, with its substantial dependence on local property taxes and resultant wide disparities in revenues available to local school districts, deprives children of an equal educational opportunity in violation of the Vermont Constitution. In reaching this conclusion, we acknowledge the conscientious and ongoing efforts of the legislature to achieve equity in educational financing and intend no intrusion upon its prerogatives to define a system consistent with constitutional requirements. In this context, the court's duty today is solely to define the impact of the state constitution on educational finding, funding, excuse me, not to fashion and impose a solution. The remedy at this juncture properly lies with the legislature. When we consider the evidence in the record before us and apply the education and common benefits clauses of the Vermont Constitution to that evidence, the conclusion becomes inescapable that the present system has fallen short of providing every school-aged child in Vermont an equal educational opportunity. This duty was eloquently described in Brown v. Board of Education. Education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. Today, it is a principal instrument in awakening the child to cultural values, in preparing him for later professional training, and in helping him to adjust normally to his environment. In these days, it is doubtful that any child may responsibly be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education, such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it, is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. Procedural history. This declaratory judgment action against the state of Vermont was filed in Lamoille Superior Court by three sets of plaintiffs alleging both distinct and overlapping claims. Two students from the Whiting and Hardwick school districts respectively, who claimed that the state methods of financing public education deprive them of their right under Vermont and federal constitutions to the same educational opportunities as students who reside in wealthier school district. Several property owners from property poor school districts who claim that the current school financing scheme compels them to contribute more than their just proportion of money to fund education in violation of these constitutions. And two school districts, Brandon and Worcester, which claimed that the current financing scheme deprives them of the ability to raise sufficient money to provide their students with educational opportunities equal to those afforded students in wealthier school districts and compels them to impose disproportionate tax rates in violation of the United States and Vermont constitutions. In response to the state's motion for summary judgment, the trial court ruled that plaintiffs' claims predicated on the federal constitution were barred in the United States Supreme Court decision in San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, Rodriguez 
which held there is no fundamental right to an education under the United States Constitution, that state education funding schemes are therefore subject only to rational basis scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and that interdistrict funding disparities are rationally related to the legitimate state purpose of fostering local control over education funding and programs. Although the Rodriguez court conceded that some identifiable quantum of education might deserve constitutional protection to ensure the basic minimal skills necessary to the exercise of free speech rights and participation in the political process, Plaintiffs here have not alleged that public education in Vermont is fundamentally inadequate or fails to impart minimal basic skills. The trial court also rejected plaintiffs' claim that Chapter 2, Subsection 68 of the Vermont Constitution establishes a fundamental right to education. That provision, in relevant part, provides... Laws for the encouragement of virtue and prevention of vice and immorality ought to be constantly kept in force and duly executed, and a competent number of schools ought to be maintained in each town unless the General Assembly permits other provisions for the convenient instruction of youth. Vermont Constitution, Chapter 2, Subsection 68. Plaintiffs alleged that the constitutional language, the case law, and the history of Vermont establishes that this provision guarantees a fundamental right to education, and by extension, a right to equal educational opportunities, and that the current funding disparities must therefore be strictly scrutinized under the Common Benefits Clause of the Vermont Constitution. The state must demonstrate, in other words, that the current financing scheme advances a compelling governmental interest and is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. In Velu versus Springer, 1973, the trial court rejected this argument, ruling that subsection 68 does not provide any rights to Vermont citizens. Accordingly, the court granted judgment for the state with respect to the claims predicated on subsection 68. The court denied summary judgment as to plaintiffs' remaining claims that, one, the current educational financing system was not rationally related to a legitimate governmental purpose, and therefore violated the right to equal protection of the laws under Chapter 1, Article 7, C. Croquette v. Peralt, 1989. When no fundamental right or suspect class is involved, state law need only reasonably relate to a legitimate public purpose. And two, it compelled the taxpayer plaintiffs to contribute disproportionate sums to fund education in violation of their rights under Chapter 1, Article 9. In explaining its decision to deny summary judgment on these claims, the court stated that it was unclear whether the parties agreed on precisely what constitutes equal educational opportunities or how the relative wealth of a district affects those opportunities. Consequently, set the case for trial to develop a factual record the parties moved jointly for permission to appeal the judgment, except for that portion disposing of plaintiffs', plaintiffs fed, federal equal protection claims. The trial court denied the motion. The parties thereupon renewed their motion with this court, and we granted the motion. 
Facts. Two. In our view, the material facts are not in dispute. Public schools in Vermont are financed principally by two means, funds raised by cities and towns solely through assessments on property within them, as authorized by 16 VSA subsection 511, and funds distributed by the state under a complex aid formula, currently known as the foundation plan. The purpose of a foundation formula is to enable each school district to spend an amount per pupil that will provide at least a minimum quality education program, known as the foundation cost. See generally Auden and Pika's School Finance a Policy Perspective, 1992. In Vermont, this is the amount necessary for elementary students to receive an education that complies with public school approval standards, C16 VSA, subsection 3492. To enable the formula to work, the legislature annually establishes a foundation tax rate as a reasonable rate of local property taxation to raise the foundation cost. Basically, state aid is calculated as a difference between the foundation cost for all students in a district and the amount the district can raise itself at the foundation tax rate. There are a number of adjustments to the basic formula that generally reduce its equalizing effect. Further, a substantial amount of state financing of education is supplied through categorical grant programs based on different distribution formulas, which may not reflect the ability of a school district to raise money itself. For example, the state funds all of the employer's share of teachers' retirement pensions for all districts, irrespective of the ability of a district to pay those costs. From an equity standpoint, the major weakness of a foundation formula distribution system is that it equalizes capacity only to a level of a minimally adequate education pro program. Vermont has adopted a limited ability for districts to receive some assistance with costs above foundation costs, primarily to help with debt service from capital construction projects. School districts with greater property wealth, however, can more easily spend above foundation costs to improve education, and the record before us shows that they usually make these expenditures. Thus, a foundation formula state aid program can boost the capacity of the poorest districts, but still leave substantial deficiencies in overall equity. Many of the states in which the highest court has held that the educational financing system does not meet constitutional minimums had foundation state aid programs in effect at the time of the decision. See a case from Arizona, from Tennessee, and from Texas. Although the foundation state aid plan was adopted fairly recently, the criticism of it has grown in recent years. It is, however, well beyond our limited role to evaluate the imperfections in the state aid formula. Even if we are to assume that it is working adequately to accomplish its purpose, we must confront the constitutionality of the system in light of the limited nature of the foundation plan's purpose. The object of the plan is not equity of educational opportunity generally, or even equality of local capacity to facilitate opportunity. It is only to equalize, to pr produce a minim minimally adequate education, assuming the voters can sustain the state-selected tax rate. That the foundation formula does not eliminate wealth disparities is shown dramatically by the record before us. Notwithstanding the fact that state aid has increased substantially in recent years, the percentage of the local contribution to education revenues has remained exceptionally high. 
In fiscal year 1994, public education revenues raised through local property taxes represented over 60% of the total cost of public education, one of the highest local shares in the nation. Furthermore, notwithstanding the considerable financial commitment by the state, there remain wide differences among school districts in per-pupil spending. At the extremes in fiscal year 1995, the town of Eden spent $2,979 per student compared with the town of Winhall, which spent 7,726, or 160% more than Eden. In December 1994, the top 5% of school districts spent from 5,812 to 7,803 per student, while the bottom 5% spent from 2,720 to 3,608. Thus, some school districts in Vermont commonly spend twice as much or more per student as other districts. The correlation between spending disparities and taxable property wealth within the districts is also well established. As summarized in a recent Department of Education analysis of school financing during fiscal year 1995, a statistically significant relationship exists between the wealth of a school district and its spending per student. Based largely on this relationship, there continues to be large disparities in per-pupil spending across school districts. From Vermont Department of Education, a scorecard for Vermont for school finance fiscal year 95. The data dramatically bears this out. In fiscal year 1995, for example, the town of Richford's property tax base was approximately $140,000 per student, second lowest in the state. And its average student expenditure was also among the lowest at 3,743. By contrast, the town of Peru enjoyed a tax base of approximately 2.2 million per student and its per pupil's expenditure was 6,476. Of course, property wealth does not invariably correlate with student expenditures. Standard's property tax base in fiscal year 1995 was somewhat over $118,000 per student compared with Shelburne, 2.5 million. Notwithstanding the vast disparity in property wealth, Standard's average expenditure per pupil, 5,684, was nearly equal to Shelburne's of 5,731. Not surprisingly, however, there was a huge disparity in their effective tax rates. On an $85,000 home, the tax in Shelburne was 247. In Standard, it was 2,040. It is thus readily apparent, as the Department of Education has noted, quote, that spending per pupil tends to be the highest in resource-rich districts who benefit further with low school tax rates. While conversely, towns with limited resources spend less per student and pay higher taxes. The undisputed evidence thus amply supports plaintiffs' claim that wide disparities in student expenditures exist among Vermont school districts, and that these disparities correlate generally with taxable property wealth within the districts. 
The record is relatively less developed with respect to plaintiffs' further assertion that funding disparities result in unequal educational opportunities, and specifically that comparatively low expenditures for education cause comparatively diminished educational opportunities for the students attending the affected schools. The essential point, however, is undisputed. The trial court noted that the state had conceded that the present funding scheme denies children residing in comparatively property-poor school districts the same educational opportunities that are available to students residing in wealthier districts. The state has not only failed to challenge this finding, it affirmatively relies on it to demonstrate that, contrary to the judgment of the court below, no genuine issue of material fact remains to be resolved at trial. Having conceded that the current funding system fails to afford Vermont school children equal educational opportunities, it is immaterial, the state contends, whether the parties agree on the precise nature of the educational opportunities affected by the disparities. Indeed, in their oral arguments before this court, the parties assumed that unequal funding yields, at a minimum, unequal curricular, technological, and human resources. School districts of equal size, but unequal funding, would not have the capacity, for example, to offer equivalent foreign language training, purchase equivalent computer technology, hire teachers and other professional personnel of equivalent training and experience, or provide equivalent salaries and benefits. In this respect, the state concedes the obvious. While we recognize that equal dollar resources do not necessarily translate equally in effect, there is no reasonable doubt that substantial funding differences significantly affect opportunities to learn. To be sure, some school districts may manage their money better than others. In circumstances extraneous to the educational system may substantially affect a child's performance. Money is clearly not the only variable affecting educational opportunity, but it is one that government can effectively equalize. Three, discussion. We now turn to the chief contention of this dispute, namely whether the disparities in educational opportunities outlined above violate Vermont law. We find the law to be unambiguous on this point. Whether we apply the strict scrutiny test urged by plaintiffs or the rational basis standard advocated by the state or some intermediate level of review, the conclusion remains the same. In Vermont, the right to education is so integral to our constitutional form of government and its guarantees of political and civil rights that any statutory framework that infringes upon the equal enjoyment of that right bears a commensurate heavy burden of justification. The state has not provided a persuasive rationale for the undisputed inequities in the current educational funding system. Accordingly, we conclude that the current system, which conceitedly denies equal educational opportunities, is constitutionally deficient. We are cognizant that, in so holding, we do not write on an entirely blank slate. Numerous state courts have in recent years considered constitutional challenges to locally funded education systems. Some have declared property tax-based systems similar to Vermont's to be unconstitutional. See P. Enrich, Leaving Equality Behind, New Directions in School Finance Reform, 1995. Almost without exception, these cases have held that education is an important or fundamental right under the applicable state constitution. 
and that gross funding inequities resulting from interdistrict property wealth disparities violate a constitutional right to equal educational opportunity. C. Edgewood, page 397, quote, children who live in poor districts and children who live in rich districts must be afforded a substantially equal opportunity to have access to educational funds, end quote. Or, Washiki County School District number one, quote, we prescribe any system which makes the quality of a child's education a function of district wealth, end quote. Or Dupree v. Alma School District, 1983, quote, for some school districts to supply the barest necessities and others to have programs gener generously endowed does not meet the requirements of the Constitution, end quote. Other state courts have upheld constitutionality of their education finance systems despite wide interdistrict funding disparities, generally concluding that they promote local control of education. See a Colorado court case from 1982, or warrant judicial scrutiny only upon showing of gross inequity. Board of Education case, 1982, appeal dismissed in 1983. Also, Enrich, collecting cases. Although informative, all of these cases are of limited precedential value to this court because of each state's constitutional evolution is unique and therefore incapable of providing a stock answer to the specific issue before us. Similarly, in opposite is the United States Supreme Court's ruling in Rodriguez, which was based on the virtual absence in the U.S. Constitution of an education clause as well as considerations of federalism, which understandably deterred the court from defining educational rights applicable in all 50 states. Neither constraint is applicable to this court. An understanding of the constitutional issue presented requires, rather, a review of the specific historical and legal origins of the right to education in Vermont. Section A, the right to education in Vermont. From its earliest days, Vermont has recognized the obligation to provide for the education of its youth. That obligation begins with the education clauses clause in the Vermont Constitution. A provision for the establishment of public schools was contained in the first constitution of 1777. That section in part provided, quote, a school or schools shall be established in each town by the legislature for the convenient instruction of youth, end quote. Constitution of 1777, Chapter 2, Subsection 40. The clause was amended in 1786 as part of a comprehensive constitutional revision. The amendment modified the language of the section and combined it with the so-called Virtue Clause, which followed the Education Clause in the original Constitution to read as follows, quote, Laws for the encouragement of virtue and prevention of vice and immorality ought to be constantly kept in force and duly executed, and a competent number of schools ought to be maintained in each town for the convenient instruction of youth. End quote, Vermont Constitution, 1786, Chapter 3, Chapter 2, Subsection 38. This amended version roughly corresponds with the Education Clause in Chapter 2, Subsection 68 of our current Constitution. Two points are striking about this constitutional provision. First and foremost is its very existence. It's easy to forget from the perspective of two centuries the daunting task 
that confronted the creators of Vermont's initial government and law. They were compelled to create an entirely new constitution setting forth, at a minimum, a declaration of fundamental human rights and a basic frame of government. The fact that they chose in this statement of first principles to include a right to public education, particularly in light of the relative paucity of state-supported public schools in existence at the time, is remarkable. The important point is not simply that public education was mentioned in the first constitution. It is, rather, that education was the only governmental service considered worthy of constitutional status. The framers were not unaware of other public needs. Among the first statutes enacted by the General Assembly in 1779 were two separate acts for the maintenance and support of the poor and infirm. One entitled an act for relieving and ordering idiots, impotent, distracted, and idle persons, specifically required towns to make necessary provision for the relief, support, and safety of of persons who, because of providence of age or sickness, were incapable of providing for themselves. Acts and Laws of Vermont 1779 at 15 to 16. The other statute, entitled An Act for Maintaining and Supporting the Poor, required towns to take care of, support, and maintain their own poor, giving rise to what has euphemistically been called poor farms. Despite the obvious public concern, for those least able to care for themselves, the framers made no provision in the Constitution for public welfare or poor relief, as it was then known. Indeed, many essential government services, such as welfare, police, and fire protection, transportation, and sanitation, received no mention whatsoever in our Constitution. Only one governmental service, public service, public education, has ever been accorded constitutional status in Vermont. The Education Clause is also instructive in what it does not provide. Although it requires that a school be maintained in each town, unless the legislature permits otherwise, it is silent on the means of their support and funding. The legislature has implemented the Education Clause by authorizing school districts to raise revenue through local property taxes. But neither this method, nor any other means of financing public education, is constitutionally mandated. Public education is a constitutional obligation of the state. Funding of education through locally imposed property taxes is not. An examination of the education clause in its historical context proves enlightening as well. Vermont did not exist as a political entity prior to 1777. Before the revolution, the territory was known as the Hampshire Grants and was torn by the competing claims of New Hampshire and New York. It was occupied by an amalgam of settlers from neighboring colonies whose loyalties often lay elsewhere. This changed dramatically in 1777 when the people of Vermont, emboldened by events in the colonies, issued their own Declaration of Independence, created the Independent Republic of Vermont, and adopted their own constitution. Thus, Vermont became the first self-created state. It was not until 1791 that Vermont could enter the Union as the 14th state. With the formal creation of the Vermont Republic, all of the institutions of self-government that had long existed in the original 13 colonies had to be created anew. Most important, all of the habits and values of a self-governing people had to be freshly invigorated and reinforced. As one historian of this period observed, The creators of Vermont could not appeal to a colonial past. The new state leaders had to convince not only the powers of the earth, but also the people of Vermont and themselves that they were entitled to statehood, end quote. Thus, for the founders of the Frontier Republic of Vermont, 
the fostering of Republican values, or public virtue, as it was commonly known in the 18th century, was not the empty rhetoric it often seems today. It was an urgent necessity, a matter literally affecting the survival of the new republic. This urgency was reflected in the Constitution, one provision of which instructed that, quote, frequent recurrence to fundamental principles and a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, industry, and frugality are absolutely necessary to preserve the blessings of liberty, Vermont Constitution of 1777. Another constitutional provision, the so-called virtue clause, declared that, quote, laws for the encouragement of virtue and prevention of vice and morality shall be made and constantly kept in force. The Republican theory of the 18th century held that public virtue, in the broad sense of moral restraint, public responsibility, and ethical values, was the bedrock and essential ingredient of self-government. G. Wood, The Creation of the American Republic, 1969. Quote, the 18th century mind was thoroughly convinced that a popularly based government cannot be supported without virtue, end quote. As John Adams wrote, quote, liberty can no more exist without virtue and independence than the body can live and move without a soul, end quote. Balin, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, 1992, quoting John Adams. In 1786, as noted, the virtue and education clauses were combined to form a single section. Nothing could be more indicative of the close connection in the minds of the framers between virtue and all that employed satvic responsibility, ethical values, industry, self-restraint, and public education than this textual union within the Constitution. No explanation for the 1786 modification survives, but the logical connection is self-evident. The amalgamation was perfectly consistent with the commonly held view of the framers that virtue was essential to self-government and that education was the primary source of virtue. In a history of Vermont published several years after its founding, Ira Allen, youngest brother of Ethan Allen, and a storied figure in his own right explained the relationship as follows. The greatest legislators, from Lycurgus down to John Locke, have laid down a moral and scientific system of, edu of education as the very foundation and cement of a state. The Vermonters are sensible of this, and for this purpose, they have planted several public schools and have established a university and endowed it with funds to draw forth and foster talents. The effects of these institutions are already experienced, and I trust that in a few years, the rising generation will evince that these useful institutions are not laid in vain. Our maxim is rather to make good men than great scholars. Let us hope for the union, for that makes the man and the useful citizen. In thus characterizing education as the cement of the state, Allen was expressing a central tenet of republicanism. No democracy can survive without a virtuous citizenry. And to inspire, it ought to be the principal business of education. Because human nature was not viewed by the framers as naturally inclined to virtue, Allen and his contemporaries, quote, saw education as the state's tool to ensure self-preservation, end quote. As Moses Mather concisely observed in 1775, the strength and spring of free government is the virtue of the people. Virtue grows on knowledge and knowledge on education, end quote. Thus understood the education clause 
assumes paramount significance in the constitutional frame of government established by the framers. It expressed and incorporated that part of Republican theory, which holds education essential to self-government and which recognizes government as the source of the perpetuation of the attributes of citizenship. The state places great store in the fact that the 1786 amendment, which combined the virtue and education sections, also modified the text of the education clause from its original schools shall be established to its current ought to be maintained. From this, it infers that the framers intended to regulate, to relegate education to a mere discretionary ideal. The framers, however, drew no distinction between ought and shall in defining rights and duties. The Declaration of Rights set forth in the revised Constitution of 1786 declared, for example, quote, that all elections ought to be free and without corruption, end quote. That search warrants, unsupported by probable cause, ought not to be granted. That the right to trial by jury ought to be held sacred. And that freedom of the press ought to be ought not to be restrained. The contention that the framers intended these fundamental freedoms to be mere aspirational ideals rather than binding and enforceable obligations upon the state cannot be seriously maintained. The state also suggests that placement of the educational clause in chapter two, setting forth the frame of government rather than chapter one, which contained the Declaration of Rights, implies that education was not considered by the framers to be an individual right. The argument is equally unpersuasive. Chapter two of the original constitution enumerated any number of original rights besides education, including the right to trial by jury, the right to bail, and the right to hold and acquire land. From the perspective of the framers, chapter two represented a perfectly logical place to provide for education. We've already touched upon the essential role of education in the framers' theory of self-government. Considered in this light, the education clause properly belonged in that part of the constitution setting forth the frame of government and the essential conditions of its survival. Apart from its prominence in the Constitution, the importance of education to self-government and the state's duty to ensure its proper dissemination have been enduring themes in the political history of Vermont. From the beginning of the Republic, Vermont's chief executives have used the occasion of their inaugural address to elaborate upon the state's affirmative obligation to cultivate the essential attributes of citizenship through public education. Addressing the General Assembly in 1802, Governor Isaac Chichnor observed, quote, it is on the progress and influence of education, knowledge, virtue, and religion that all orders of men will receive the most substantial benefits that can accrue either to individuals or to societies, end quote. 1802 Journal of the General Assembly of the State of Vermont. Governor Samuel Crafts, speaking in 1828, echoed these sentiments, quote, as our social and political institutions can be sustained and perpetuated only by the general virtue and intelligence of the community, it is our indisputable duty to make such provision for instruction as will qualify our youth to discharge the important trust which will be committed to their care, end quote. Similarly, Governor 
Erastus Fairbanks, on the eve of the Civil War declared, quote, a proper system of instruction is recognized as one of the first duties of the state. It is only as the youth of the country shall be properly instructed, morally and intellectually, for the duties of citizens that our free institutions in the hands of the coming and future generations are to be preserved intact, end quote. The courts of the state, of this state, have been no less forthright in declaring education to be a fundamental obligation of the state. In 1860, this court gave voice to that duty with unequivocal clarity. Quote, from the earliest period of this state, the proper education of all the children of its inhabitants has been regarded as a matter of vital interest to the state, a duty which devolved upon its government. End quote. The Constitution of the state especially enjoins upon the legislature the duty of passing laws to carry out this object. The whole subject of the maintenance and support of common schools has ever been regarded in the state as one not only of public usefulness, but of public necessity, and one which the state in its sovereign character was bound to sustain. Similar statements in later decisions abound. Quote, it is clear that education is a function of the state as distinguished from local government. End quote. 1968. Begin quote, our constitution imposes on the General Assembly a duty in regard to education that is universally accepted as a proper public purpose, end quote, appeal dismissed in 1969. And discussing importance of education and preserving representative government and noting states' commitment to this essential government function. Notwithstanding its long and settled history as a fundamental obligation of state government, the state contends that the primary constitutional responsibility for education rests with the towns of Vermont, that its funding must be derived from whatever sources are available locally, that the only substantial tax available to towns is the property tax, and therefore that funding inequities are an inevitable but nevertheless constitutional consequence of local disparities in property wealth. The state asserts that its only responsibility, if any, is to ameliorate inequities if they become too extreme and that it has acted responsibly in this role. This argument fundamentally misunderstands the state's constitutional responsibility outlined above for public education. The state may delegate to local towns and cities the authority to finance and administer the schools within their borders. It cannot, however, abdicate the basic responsibility for education by passing it on to local governments who are themselves creations of the state. The state's position confuses constitutional ends, the obligation to maintain a competent number of schools in each town, with legislative means, that is, the methods it has employed to fulfill its obligation. As noted, our Constitution nowhere states that the revenue for education must be raised locally, that the source of the revenue must be property taxes, or that such revenues must be distributed unequally in conformity with local wealth. To be sure, these are long-standing and traditional components of the educational financing system in Vermont, but none of these represents a constitutional imperative. They are choices made by the government of the state of Vermont and choices for which it bears ultimate responsibility. The wisdom of the original constitutional structure becomes most apparent when considered in a modern context. Chapter 2, subsection 68 states, in general terms, the state's responsibility to provide for education. But, 
is silent on the means to carry it out. What the state characterizes as the basic constitutional structure of the system is really the legislative means of implementing it, which can and should be modified if it no longer fulfills its purpose. Means and methods that are effectively in a rural society with limited development of property resources and largely local industries may become ineffective with the advent of major ski resorts and sizable industrial developments. The towns where the employees of these businesses actually live and educate their children bear the financial burden of development while reaping none of the tax advantages. Whether this dysfunction between means and ends ultimately denies the citizens of Vermont the common benefit of the education constitutionally guaranteed is the question to which we now turn. B. The right to equal educational opportunities. It is against the foregoing legal and historical backdrop that the sharp disparities among school districts in per-pupil spending and the resultant inequities in educational opportunities must be constitutionally evaluated. We have held that the Common Benefits Clause in the Vermont Constitution is generally coextensive with the equivalent guarantee in the U.S. Constitution and imports similar methods of analysis. As a general rule, challenges under the Equal Protection Clause are reviewed by the rational basis test, whereby distinctions will be found unconstitutional only if similar persons are treated differently on wholly arbitrary and capricious grounds. Where a statutory scheme affects fundamental constitutional rights or involves suspect classifications, both federal and state decisions have recognized that proper equal protection analysis necessitates a more searching scrutiny. The state must demonstrate that any discrimination occasioned by the law serves a compelling governmental interest and is narrowly tailored to serve that objective. This is not a case, however, that turns on the particular constitutional test to be employed. Labels aside, we are simply unable to fathom a legitimate governmental purpose to justify the gross inequities and educational opportunities evident from the record. The distribution of a resource as precious as educational opportunity may not have as its determining force the mere fortuity of a child's residence. It requires no particular constitutional expertise to recognize the capriciousness of such a system. The principal rationale offered by the state in support of the current financing system is the laudable goal of local control. Individual school districts may well be in the best position to decide whom to hire, how to structure their educational offerings, and how to resolve other issues of a local nature. The state has not explained, however, why the current funding system is necessary to foster local control. Regardless of how the state finances public education, it may still leave the basic decision-making power with the local districts. Moreover, Insofar as local control means the ability to decide that more money should be devoted to the education of children within a district, we have seen, as another court once wrote, that for poorer districts, such fiscal free will is a cruel illusion. We do not believe that the voters of Londonderry necessarily care more about education than their counterparts in Lowell simply because they spend nearly twice as much per student. 6,005 as compared to 3,207 in fiscal year 1995. On the contrary, if committed to learning is measured by the rate at which residents are willing to tax themselves, 
Then Lowell with a property base of less than one-third per student than that of Londonderry, and a property tax nearly twice as high, should be considered the more devoted to education. In short, poorer districts cannot realistically choose to spend more for educational excellence than their property wealth will allow, no matter how much sacrifice their voters are willing to make. The current system plainly does not enhance fiscal choice for poorer school districts. The state also appears to argue that the current system must be upheld because even conceding the Constitution provides a basic right to education, there is no evidence the framers intend that right to be distributed equally. The answer to this argument is twofold. First, although the documentary evidence of the framers' particular intentions in this regard is negligible, as early as 1828, the scope of the state's duty to educate was defined in terms of fundamental equality. Our youth can be considered in no other light than as children of the state, having a common interest in the preservation of and the benefits to be derived from our free institutions and possessing also, whether rich or poor, equal claims upon our patriotism, our liberty, and our justice. It is therefore our paramount duty to place the means for obtaining instruction information equally within the reach, reach of all. That's from the inaugural address of Governor Samuel Crafts in 1828. Thus, while the political means or the political will to effectuate the goal of educational equity may have been absent for many years, the principle has long been present. The second response to the state's argument is simply that equal protection of the laws cannot be limited by 18th century standards. While history must inform our constitutional analysis, it cannot bind it. Yesterday's bare essentials are no longer sufficient to prepare a student to live in today's global marketplace. To keep a democracy competitive and thriving, students must be afforded equal access to all that our educational system has to offer. In the funding of what our Constitution places at the core of a successful democracy, the children of Vermont are entitled to a reasonably equal share. The state additionally asserts that the current educational state aid program, the Foundation Plan, serves the rational purpose of ameliorating disparities among school districts while preserving a maximum level of local control over spending. We do not question the laudatory objectives of the Foundation Plan. As noted earlier, however, the notion that property tax-based funding allows local school districts the flexibility to devote more money to education is, for many districts, largely illusion illusory. Moreover, there is no necessary or logical connection between local control over the raising of educational funds and local decision-making with respect to educational policy. Nor are we persuaded that the foundation plan sufficiently improves the financial position of property-poor districts as compared to property-rich districts to eliminate any constitutional claim of discrimination. The Constitution does not, to be sure, require exact equality of funding among school districts or prohibit minor disparities attributable to unavoidable local differences. As we have seen, however, that is not the situation we confront. On the contrary, the evidence discloses substantial interdistrict funding disparities despite the efforts of the state through the Comprehensive State Aid Program. Finally, the state contends that the Common Benefits Clause is simply not offended by the unequal treatment of public school children residing in different districts, so long as all are provided a minimally adequate education. 
The basis for such an argument is not entirely clear. We find no authority for the proposition that discrimination in the distribution of a constitutionally mandated right such as education may be excused merely because a minimal level of opportunity is provided to all. As Justice Marshall observed, the Equal Protection Clause is not addressed to minimal sufficiency, but rather to the unjustifiable inequalities of state action. The evidence demonstrates, in sum, that the system falls well short of achieving reasonable educational equality of opportunity. Therefore, we hold that the student and school district plaintiffs are entitled to judgment as a matter of law that the current educational financing system in Vermont violates the right to equal educational opportunities under Chapter 2, Subsection 68, and Chapter 1, Article 7 of the Vermont Constitution. In so holding, we emphasize that absolute equality of funding is neither a necessity nor a practical requirement to satisfy the constitutional command of equal educational opportunity. As plaintiffs re readily concede, differences among school districts in terms of size, special educational needs, transportation costs, and other factors will invariably create unavoidable differences in per-pupil expenditures. Equal opportunity does not necessarily require precisely equal per capita expenditures, nor does it necessarily prohibit cities and towns from spending more on education if they choose. But it does not allow a system in which educational opportunity is necessarily a function of district wealth. Equal educational opportunity cannot be achieved when property-rich school districts may tax low and property-poor districts must tax high to achieve even minimum standards. Children who live in property-poor districts and children who live in property-rich districts should be afforded a substantially equal opportunity to have access to similar educational revenues. Thus, as other state courts have done, we hold only that to fulfill its constitutional obligation, the state must ensure substantial equality of educational opportunity throughout Vermont. Finally, we underscore the limited reach of our holding. Although the legislature should act under the Vermont Constitution to make educational opportunity available on substantially equal terms, the specific means of discharging this broadly defined duty is properly left to its discretion. C remaining plain. In addition to educational equity, the property owner and school district plaintiffs have claimed a right to tax rate equity. They assert that taxpayers from property-poor districts are compelled to pay higher tax rates and therefore contribute disproportionate sums to fund education in violation of Chapter 1, Article 9 of the Vermont Constitution. Without explanation, the trial court denied summary judgment on this point, thereby allowing the claim to proceed to trial. Although the state appealed to the ruling, it devoted such scant attention to the subject in its briefs, two pages out of 60, that we would be forced to, quote, undertake a search for error where it was not adequately briefed or supported by the arguments, end quote. Accordingly, we decline to rule on this issue at this time. Declaratory judgment entered for the student and school district plaintiffs on their claim 
that the current educational funding system denies equal educational opportunities in violation of the Vermont Constitution, remanded so that jurisdiction may be retained until valid legislation is enacted and in effect, and for any further proceedings on plaintiff's remaining claim, if necessary. So thank you. Listeners, that is the text of the Brigham decision. Emily, before we sign off, what do we want to leave listeners with? Oh, Olga, that's a really big question. Um, I'm sitting with this idea around equality versus equity. I'm sitting mostly, I think, with this assumption that I think the justices were operating under that if we provided, if we create a mechanism that would provide equal access to funding, which we have indeed done, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that then would provide equitable access to educational opportunities. And it seems that that has not been so. And so we must think again about how to do this. Thank you, Emily. That is the main point I am sitting with too, is that tension between, excuse me, equitable access to funding and equitable opportunity. So uh, thank you listeners for listening in. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We hope you all had as good a 2021 as one could have. (laughs) And we wish you a full and abundant 2022.